partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and boiled it down to relationship problems. It destroyed their relationship with God and because of jealousy and blame and so on, it destroyed their relationship with each other. <clears throat> so what happened there was very obviously devastating. But what does it all mean? I did mention that they, it was the tree of the knowledge of good. Uh, not all evil. It was both. A tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They already knew good, therefore, what it represented was a contrast between the two. They did not know evil at that point. They knew only good. So, what it did was define what evil was. And obviously, evil occurred there because the results were evil. And they led toward, ultimately, physical death and if not repented of, they will lead to spiritual death. Uh, I am not in a position, nor are you, or is anyone else on this earth, to judge whether Adam and evil, Adam and evil, what kind of slip, not Freud, and I'm sure. Adam and Eve, I love women. Adam and Eve, where, where was I headed now? About lost that one. Uh, it could lead to spiritual death, but we cannot judge Adam and Eve. Were they ever converted? No. Uh, did they have a knowledge of all truth? No. I think it's premature and judgmental to say that they've lost the chance for eternal life. What that represented was eternal life soon through the tree of life. But that was not granted. They were taken away from that tree so they could not partake of it in their sinful state. Some people say Judas is condemned to death. Not necessarily. Christ knew well ahead of time that Judas would betray him. He knew his attitude was not right from the beginning. Judas was never converted and in fact, he told all the disciples, when you are converted, or Peter, I guess it was anyway. So Judas wasn't converted. Did he lose his chance at life? Not necessarily. He hung himself and ruined his physical life. But I think it is very significant that God does not in any place name an individual who has lost eternal life. He has revealed quite a few names, Hebrews 11 for starters, of people who have gained eternal life. In other words, God is very, very positive. And what He does with Adam and Eve, ultimately, and with Judas and with others that we might question, Solomon is another one that is questioned, he was never converted. I personally doubt that those people have lost out on eternal life. They may come up in the second resurrection and have opportunity to truly learn and truly be converted. <clears throat> Satan got to Adam and Eve before they even understood what evil was. So how were they in that sense responsible at that point? And was their sin any worse than some of yours and mine? 
And we can be forgiven, can't we? Anyway, it was then the contrast between good and evil that partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil accomplished. It defined it. So there was a definition made there, and when they came down on the wrong side and partook of that tree, suddenly they understood evil. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to pick this story up and go through and show what the Scripture says about Adam and Eve and about us. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It's important that we understand what they did there, what the implications are. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, let's go to verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. So, of people who have died a physical death on the earth, he is the first one to go into the kingdom of God. For since by man came death. Now, we know that death came through Adam and Eve because of sin. But this clearly says that it came through Adam. So, what Adam did was sin, as we, once we get to the definition of what sin is. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So what Adam did brought in death. What Christ did brought in the opportunity for life. So both represent all of mankind. Adam representing mankind on the sin side, and Christ representing all mankind on the sinless side. Never did sin in his life. That is, he never broke the law. Uh, Job thirty-one thirty-three, And I'm going to prove that he never broke the law and that Adam did because the law is what is involved here. Job 31. And here I want verse 33. <clears throat> If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. Now, is Adam transgressed, obviously, from what Job said. Well, what does transgression amount to? Is it sin? Iniquity. Is that sin? Because Adam had transgression, just as Job did. And he had iniquity, just as Job refers to here. So it's clear that Adam had those things. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. This is an important definition, because today is about definitions. I want to go back to 1 John <coughs> chapter 3. You probably already know this one, but I think it's important that we go there. Verse 4. Who commits sin transgresses also the law. So we just read that Adam transgressed. So sin and transgression are the same thing. They're synonyms by this definition in Scripture. For sin is the transgression of the law. Here the Bible defines in one phrase what sin is. 
Now, you may know that, but a lot of people out in the world who claim to be Christians either have not read or have not paid any attention to this verse. Now, Adam and Eve transgressed. They sinned. Therefore, if there was sin, there had to be transgression of the law. Correct? This is not my interpretation. This is letting the Bible speak for itself. Translate, define itself. Let's go to one more along these lines, back in Romans 4. Romans 4. And here let's go to uh, verse 15. Because, the, this is Paul writing now, people go to Paul to prove that you don't need the law, and we'll get to that eventually. We're not going there quite yet. I want to stay on this for a while for a reason. Verse 15, because the law works wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. So if Adam and Eve transgressed, sinned, there had to have been a law there. They had to have broken the law. Therefore, for them to have been in a good state and to go to an evil state, they must have broken the law. So it was the law that defined good from evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil does represent the law of God. I think that will become clearer and clearer as we go forward. The definitions we've seen so far would indicate that. Now, the obvious connection that some people will make is that what happened was evil and was going to bring death. Therefore, if it does represent the law... The law needs to be thrown away because the law is evil. Now, is that the case? Romans 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is a memory verse. Romans three twenty-three. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, speaking of all men but Christ. And Paul himself again says in Romans 6, verse 23, The wages of sin is death. So Adam and Eve sinned, and God told them as a result of what they had done, they would die. So if sin is the transgression of the law, and what they did brought death, then obviously they broke the law. So what they did represents the law, and that tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil has to represent the law. It cannot be any other way. Let's go back to Romans three. This is a chapter written by Paul. Uh, and it's important. He, he shows here, I, I will touch on Paul a little bit. I'm not going into those tricky parts of Paul at this point. But some of these clear ones 
that have to do with the law and it being a good thing, because Paul said that many times, Romans 7, he talked about how the law is holy and just and good. And yet, here we're saying that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the law. Now, is that a major contradiction? Or does this somehow correlate and make sense? Because some people will say, we don't have to keep the law of God. That is what most of so-called Christianity says today. You don't believe that, and I don't either. But why? We need to know what we know, and we need to know why we know it. And we need to know the implications thereof. And you need to be in a position where you have proved all things, and you know, and you know that you know what you do need to keep and what you do not need to keep lest you be deceived, as Adam and Eve were. Now here he's talking about the Jews and the problems that they have, and that they did have an advantage, and that they did have the sayings of God, the Old Testament. But they didn't do so well. Verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not even a self-righteous Jew. None is righteous. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. And then he uses some of the same language to describe them that Christ did. Not very good. The way of peace, verse 17, they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We just concluded a long series about fear and showing that the fear of God is so important. And here, Paul is saying they didn't have the fear of God, and that was one of the greatest condemnations. So it is a very, very important thing. Now we know, verse 19, that what things soever the law says, whatever the law says, okay, it says to them who are under the penalty of the law, what does under the law mean? It means under the penalty of the law. Do you realize that a law does not hurt you as long as you don't break it? Is there something bad about a law that says not to kill your neighbor? That law is there, and if you don't kill your neighbor, there's no penalty, is there? You are not under the penalty of the law. The law, per se, has nothing wrong with it. It's the breaking that's the problem. It's the breaking that brings the penalty. So, it is truly said, and this will clear a lot of confusion sometimes, because people say, we're not under the law. That is not truly a correct statement. When the Bible mentions that in context, it's saying we are not under the penalty of the law. Why? Because our transgressions are covered in the blood of Christ. And therefore the law cannot touch us anymore. It's like amnesty, if you will. Or grace is another way of putting it. Let's go on here. <clears throat> that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. We have all sinned, every last one of us, and we need help. If we don't get out from under 
the penalty of the law. What is the penalty of the law? Death. Break the law, you die. So you have to come not out from under the law, you have to come out from under the penalty of it. Now, if you break it, then the penalty is there again unless you're forgiven, right? Just because you serve a sentence for murder and maybe get out on amnesty, does that mean then that you can go and murder somebody else? No, you'll, if you do, you'll come under another penalty, another trial. Let's notice this. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Of course, because every one of us will break it. And you only have to break it once to die. You can keep the law pretty well. And just, you don't have to murder 50 times to die. Once is quite enough. And you can have the death penalty. But notice this. By the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is defined, or does define, the law. What did they suddenly have a knowledge of? There had been nothing but good. They had never broken any law. They didn't have any guilt, any shame, any conflict, any problems. But the minute, the second, they partook of that tree of the knowledge and good of, of good and evil, they had a knowledge of sin. What came over them immediately? Shame. Guilt. What is guilt from? Knowing you did something wrong. Sin is doing something wrong. So right here, Paul himself defines exactly what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. By the law is the knowledge of sin. So what they did right there brought sin into the world. Or in, as in Adam, all sin, all die. These are key and critical scriptures for us to know and to understand. Now, we read that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. So they sinned, therefore they died. And by the law is the knowledge of sin. So this is coming together. Ezekiel 18.4. The soul that sins, it shall die. Sin is the breaking of the law. We already read that, 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. And if you transgress the law, you shall die. It's that simple. Now, that was easy. But since we, in the New Testament, or under the New Covenant are where we are, that is, under grace, does it then matter if we break the law? That is a critical question. Because some would say, well, that was fine back then for them. But what about now for us? Is there a difference? 
Now, I've quoted mostly from the New Testament here, though, haven't I? That's strange. Anyway, while we're here in Romans, let's go to Romans 6. Well, verse 5, let's pick verse 21 up. That as sin has reigned to death, in other words, sin has reigned and has been bringing death ever since the garden, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto life eternal by Emmanuel our Lord. So, Paul does say here that sin reigned, but now grace reigns, and therefore we can have eternal life. I do not disagree with that, but does it mean what a lot of Protestants and others think it means? Paul answers his own question. What shall we say then? Because sin came from Adam until Christ, and now Christ offers eternal life, is it now okay to sin, that is, break the commandments? Is that something that's okay to do? Is it okay now to do away with the Sabbath, in other words? Is that all right? Read on. What shall we say then? Since Christ, not Adam, now reigns. Shall we continue in breaking the law? That's what sin is. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, the more we sin, the more forgiveness we can have, and therefore Christ's sacrifice just gets bigger and bigger because grace or forgiveness abounds. Now, that's what Protestants really would have you believe. It doesn't matter. There is no sin since the law is done away, and therefore you can pretty much do anything you want, and you can worship on Wednesday if you want to, or whatever. The law is bad and wretched and went away. It's done. No. Well, what does Paul himself say? God forbid. That's pretty strong. How shall we, the converted, Paul, an apostle, how shall we that are dead to sin, that is, Christ's death took the place of our sin, live any longer in sin? No, He forgave our sin through His sacrifice, but that doesn't mean that we can continue to sin and just automatically be forgiven. God forbid we should take that approach. And yet many do. Verse 14 says almost the same thing. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not rule your life. That is, commandment breaking should not rule your life because that's what sin is. For you are not under the penalty of the law, but under grace, under forgiveness. The penalty of the law no longer applies if Christ takes it away in His sacrifice, and you are un under forgiveness or grace because of His sacrifice. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law or the penalty of the law, but under grace? God forbid. The law is still very much alive. 
There's nothing wrong as long as you don't break it. Is, is the penalty of the law death? Answer that question. That question alone. Is the penalty of the law death? No. Not at all. The law is here. Does that create death automatically? No. The only way it creates death is if you break it. The penalty is death. The law is not death. I'll prove that to you in a minute. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. In other words, he's saying we shall not break the law. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. Obedience to what? The law. That's what we're asked to obey. Now, Paul's saying this pretty plainly. This isn't one of the trickier parts of what he had to say. Now, let's go to Isaiah 59. Now, what happened with Adam and Eve? We talked about that. When they partook of the tree of G&E, they immediately had a problem with God, and they had a problem with each other. Chapter 59 of Isaiah. Behold, the Eternal's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. God can save. He doesn't have short arms. He can reach us. He can save us. That is not the problem. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. When we pray, he doesn't need a hearing aid. He can hear. Here is the problem. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Another key scripture. What did Adam and Eve's sin do? It destroyed the communication, the opportunity, the relationship between them and God, and they ran and hid from Him, hoping He could not see nor hear them. Those iniquities, that sin, that breaking of the law, destroyed that relationship. And there's been a breach ever since. Now, sin separates us from God. What was Adam and Eve's sin? People would say, well, the law wasn't even given until Sinai. What law? Was there a law then? What law did they break? They couldn't have sinned unless there was a law. We've already seen that. So what sin was it? Is some sin worse than other sin. Now, among men, mankind, that is true. We could look at the Ten Commandments and say this sin is worse than that sin. 
Uh, adultery would be worse than lying in most Protestant churches. Uh, Sabbath breaking would be not as bad as murder in some churches. So we ourselves tend to make judgments. Whatever sin somebody else commits is obviously a worse sin than the one you commit. <laughs> Let's get personal. You know you might lie, but he did that. So you make those judgments, don't you? We all do. That's where self-righteousness comes in, because our sin is never quite as bad as somebody else's. So whether we would technically define it that way, in uh, life, we do make those judgments. Now, we might privately say, well, I know I ought to quit that, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That is the very root and core of self-righteousness. Okay, they couldn't have sinned unless there was a law. Scriptures told us that. So what law was it? Is there a sin that is worse than the others? Is there? Now, I've already said, we make that judgment. Now, we make it in a wrong way, but is it true? Let's go to Matthew 22 and see what Christ himself said. Matthew 22. Let's pick this up in verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him. The Pharisees looked upon themselves as much better than the Sadducees. And they thought that some laws were more important than others, because they looked down on the Sadducees, and yet the Pharisees themselves were sinners. And Christ had a lot to say about the Pharisees. So even though he had silenced the Sadducees, the self-righteous Pharisees thought they still had a leg to stand on. We won't go into all the detail of that at this point, but understand that. So they tempted him and said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? They had obviously, and this lawyer had, determined that there must be a great commandment, and he was he had his own idea of what it was, and he knew that he was, at least in his mind, keeping that one, and the Sadducees and others, and probably Christ, weren't. Because this is a self-righteous man who is making this statement, this, asking this question. So he says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law. He thought he could trip him up. That was always their desire and object. Emmanuel said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. It is the first, 
And it is the Great One. Now, Christ Himself defines, have no other gods before me, as the one greatest or great commandment. So he himself says that that is the first and great. Some laws are higher and more important than others. Isn't that what that's saying? And the second, the second greatest, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we understand, if you break the Ten Commandments down into the first four and the last six, that the first four are directed primarily toward your relationship with God, and the last six, your relationship with men. Now, physically and spiritually, they go back and forth, and if you break one, you have broken them all, that's for certain. But the first four are directed specifically in your obedience to God, the Sabbath being one of those four. Why is the Sabbath included? Because God is the great Creator. And God is the one who set up the week. And God is the one who established the weekly cycle and told man to memorialize that day forevermore as a day to do what? Worship, honor, and serve God. Put aside, as Isaiah 58 says, all your own thoughts, all your own actions, all your own ways, and devote it specifically to God. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you're breaking the first and great commandment. Right? That means we don't... Well, what do human beings tend to do? We tend to get all involved in our lives, in our work, in our hobbies, our families, our whatever... We get all involved in those things. And what happens during the first six days of the week? We tend to forget God. We tend to get so busy, busy, busy with other things that we don't pay enough attention to Him. We don't set aside enough time for Him. It just slips by by human nature, doesn't it? And it's one that has to be fought because our relationship with God should be a daily relationship in the form of prayer, study, meditation, observance of all the things He would have us do. It is a momentary thing. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Now, who said Christianity was easy? We talked about that some last week. Your thoughts, my thoughts, can go all over the map. Just like that. You ever notice you can be praying and your mind will suddenly be somewhere way away from there? It just, choom, gone. Oh, I was talking to God. Well, why am I over here thinking this? It's so easy. Not to bring every thought into the captivity. That's a tough assignment. Christianity is hard if you do it right. So God, every seventh day, says, 
put your thoughts away. Don't sit sending inane text messages to somebody that don't mean anything. That's your pleasure. That's a day to devote to God. That's not a day to watch TV. That's not a day to play golf. That's not a day to you do your thing. He says you can do your thing six days a week as long as it doesn't interfere with Christianity. But this is the day that I have set apart to build your relationship with me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So it has to do with your relationship with God. And they destroyed that relationship with God. Now, I want to take this back, and let's understand a big picture. Before Adam and Eve were ever put in a garden, there was the Father and He who came to be known as the Son, those two beings, and they had created together angels, 24 elders, Quite a few spiritual beings who were created, a host of, or a heavenly host, angels, so on. Now, there was absolute peace, unanimity, beauty, rest, no problems in the universe at all under those circumstances. Was there law? Did there need to be law? Everybody did what was right. Everybody was like Adam and Eve. They did not even know what evil was. They had never experienced it. Never had a negative emotion. That was true of all the heavenly hosts. And then one, at some point said, I'm beautiful. I'm smart. I'm very beautiful. I'm very smart. I think I'm more beautiful than God. I think I'm smarter. Oh, mercy. What had he done? He had broken the first and great commandment. The same thing happened in the universe that had happened in the Garden of Eden. One being had a thought of vanity and selfishness and broke the first and great commandment. Up until that point, everyone had revered God. They had trusted God implicitly. They never had a bad word to say about God or another angel or anything else negative. Everybody understood that is God. That is the one that everybody answers to, listens to, believes, trusts, obeys, serves, gives glory, honor, and majesty, and power to. Everybody understood that without equivocation. And then entered the first selfish thought that put self ahead of God, which created an idol. And that is why when God codified the law, 
he said, you shall have no other gods before me. That which had been understood, that which had been lived by, did not need to be spoken until someone stepped away from it. Your child, as it begins to grow, may not have ever been told, don't touch that flower pot. He didn't touch it. He didn't care about it. He liked something over here better. He didn't care about the flower pot. It was only when you saw something go through his mind and saw his hand reach for it and you knew a new disaster was imminent that you said, no, don't touch that. And suddenly, by your tone of voice and his past experience, he knew that was a no. Don't touch that. He hadn't known the pot was a no until then, had he? Didn't bother him. Didn't hurt his conscience. Didn't care. It was only when he was about to do something that you didn't like that would cause a problem for you that he suddenly learned. And all the angels, including Satan, Hillel, were in that same position until he did something that was, had never been done before. He broke the first and great commandment. There had been no penalty up till then, had there? But suddenly, there was a penalty. He fell as a star from heaven. His relationship with God was destroyed. He could no longer be close to God. Now, he was in charge of a third of the angels, and they had never rebelled. They never said, who does he think he is? Because from the Father, down through the authority that he had set up, no one had ever said, no one's going to tell me what to do. No one had ever rebelled. There was perfect harmony. So he easily deceived the third of the angels who were under him because they had looked to him for authority and guidance and direction. And that had never been questioned. So when he made his allegations against God, they just went along with it. We cannot allow ourselves to ever go there. But they did, and they fell with him. See what follow the leader can do if you don't pay attention? Now, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. The first and great commandment was still there. Adam and Eve did not know about it, but they did know that this being that they talked with every day had made them out of the dirt of the earth, and that He'd created all these animals, and He'd brought them to Adam to name them. They understood that God was great. That's all they needed to know. Life was good. But Satan came to them, and what did he begin to do immediately? He began to use the same thing on them that he had used with himself. Well, God has said, oh, okay, well, we know God, and, and He's our friend, and, and we do everything He says. God has said this. Well, that's true. But, 
you will not surely die. Well, there's a new thought. And they listened. And what did they do? They obeyed Satan. They broke the first and great commandment. That commandment was in the universe. It had been broken by Satan and the third of the angels. And now he led Adam and Eve to do the exact same thing. What they did was made a god out of Satan by doing what he said instead of what God had said. They made an idol of themselves by putting themselves ahead of God. So they created several idols there. Satan was their idol, and they were their own idol. And the fall of angels with Satan were also their idol. Now, does it become, begin to become clearer to us when we say that some people who claim to be Christians are worshiping the wrong God? That when Satan told the Pharisees, I mean, when Christ told, excuse me, Christ told the Pharisees, you worship you know not what. They thought they worshipped the eternal God of creation. They thought they had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to their fathers, and they were A-OK. But they were not obeying the commandments of God. And therefore, since they were obeying Satan, who is commandmentless, Satan was their God. They worshipped him and didn't even know it. He was their idol. He was what they put ahead of God. Now, when someone says the Ten Commandments of God are done away and we don't have to keep them, they worship the devil and don't even know it. The first and great commandment is one of the ten. And if you break any of those ten, you have an idol. That is something you put ahead of God. Now, Adam sinned grievously. And part of his sin was not loving his wife enough. And standing up to her and for her. When he saw what was happening there, he should have said, Eve, don't do it. Instead, he stood there like a dummy and did what she had just done. Now, Eve was cursed because of what she did. Adam was cursed because of what he did. Now, the spiritual curse that they came under because of their individual sin, and God held Adam perhaps more responsible because he said, in Adam all die, not in Eve do all die. Adam represented mankind. And Adam should have taken the lead, but he was Dagwood. Now, I want you women to understand something. I've said it before in different ways. But the spiritual curse that was brought on Eve 
has been removed in the New Testament. You don't understand what I mean by that. God made woman subject to man in a very physical, chattel way. They could be misused, abused, bought and sold, mistreated. Man was in charge, and women became like cattle. Now, under the new covenant, since Christ came and died, you have your own responsibility before God. You have a brain. You supposedly and hopefully were converted and baptized because of your relationship that was beginning to be built with Almighty God. You had turned away or were beginning to turn away from Satan and this world and beginning to obey God yourself. Your redemption comes to you through Christ, not through your husband. You stand alone before God. You will be judged not on what you did because your husband told you to, but because of your relationship personally with God. You do not answer to your husband in terms of your relationship to God. That has changed. Somebody says, well, I can't do this or I can't do this. That I have to obey my husband. No, you don't. Not if what he tells you is contrary to anything God has said. Obey God rather than man. Acts 5.29 You put God first, no matter what. Now, God laid that responsibility on Eve. Even though Adam should have been the leader, she too sinned and she too was cursed. Now, just as the spiritual curse and sin of Adam is being lifted under the new covenant through the sacrifice of Christ, so is the woman's. But she has, again, spiritual responsibility for herself. She is not just chattel to her husband. That's why Ephesians 5 says that you are to honor and submit yourselves one to another. Now, the man is truly the head of the house, but he needs to be sure he is leading his wife in the right direction. Otherwise, he may be responsible for his and her death. And she cannot simply do what her husband says. She has to study this word herself and use her mind and use the Holy Spirit of God to determine her course. And I say these things because so often even in the New Testament church, women have left the church because their husband did. And very few have been able to stand and say, you may go that way, but I'm not. You have to stand up for your relationship with God. And He holds you responsible. It doesn't matter what your husband does or says if it's contrary to this book. You have every right to disobey Him. 
Now, in physical things, he should be the leader, but he should not be demanding in a wrong way. And a man should never look upon a woman as a second-class citizen. It's usually his own inferiority complex that leads him to have those attitudes in the first place. So instead of leading with intellect, with spirituality, with the right kind of leadership, he simply puts her down because he's bigger and stronger and can and can point and say, well, I'm the leader here. Now, you may be the leader in name, but you're not the leader unless you lead. In love, compassion, mercy, peace, joy, happiness, all those things. You can call yourself a leader all you want, but if you're not leading, it's in name only, and it means nothing. And looking upon a woman as a lesser creature is ungodly. She is not a lesser creature. She is a co-heir of eternal life. And you need to respect that in her and respect her mind. And you'll get along a whole lot better. Does that mean you have to let her run everything? No. You make final decisions. If there's conflict, and you use compassion and mercy. But I'll tell you, if you're leading in a right way, a woman will not have near as much trouble following your direction and your guidance as she will as if you're a titular head only, setting yourself above her, because you were not. Now, God put the man in charge for reasons we'll not go into. That isn't the purpose today. But I did want to show that each person dies for their own sin. Adam and Eve were cursed individually because they both broke the first and great commandment. And in so doing, it led them to break the rest, didn't it? They began to lie. They stole. They dishonored their Father in heaven. And and on and on it went. But that's the first and great one. And then they broke the second, which is similar to it, and that was their relationship with each other, and it was destroyed. That's as far as God needed to take it. And Satan knew if he could get them to break the first and great, he had them. That's what he had done. Destroyed the relationship with God, and he wanted the relationship with Adam and Eve, and God destroyed. That was the easiest way to do it. He knew that there was a tree of life there. And he knew if he could get them to partake of the one tree that they had been told not to partake of, that he could then maybe lead them to the tree of life and have them partake of it. And then they would have had to have lived forever in the same guilt and shame and misery and accusation and negativity that he is in. He tried to take them right where he was. It's kind of like the man that says, if I can't have her, you don't either. Or, as Satan would put it, if I can't get my relationship with God straight again and I can't live in eternal happiness, you can't either. Jealousy, spite, vengeance was what he took out on mankind in that garden. 
He wanted them the same fate he suffers. And had God not put them out of the gate and put cherubim there to guard it, he would have somehow finagled them to take part in the tree of life and they would have lived forever in sin and hate and misery, vengeance and spite, like most of mankind basically lives today. God would not allow them to partake of eternal life under those circumstances. The law was there, wasn't it? Satan had broken it, and he died a spiritual death. I do not know what his final uh, judgment will be. The Bible makes some hints, and we have a lot of people with a lot of theories on that. We don't even want to go there. It doesn't matter to us. We know what our fate is if we break the law. So the law was already there underlying everything, but until somebody stepped over the bounds and broke that precept, that understanding, which is a natural law. This universe is ruled over by the great eternal God. At any time you get sideways with Him, it destroys the peace and the relationship. And that's where we are. Have been ever since that garden. Now, Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was resurrected. Did it solve all the problems? I have known a lot of people who say they live under grace, but the law is done away with. That we do not keep, need to keep the law, but we live in the glow of the love of God, the love of Jesus. Do all those people who say that live a life of absolute peace, tranquility, love, enjoyment, patience, long-suffering? Do they have any problems in their lives? I know many, many, many born-agains. And I don't know one that is fully happy. I see divorces, I see homicides, I see lying, I see cheating, I see st stealing. I see all kinds of problems. You know, born-again Christians commit suicide and homicide. Something was unhappy to cause them to do that. Now, is there something wrong with Protestantism then? Is there something wrong with their viewpoint? What's haywire? If they're living in the love of God, and they love God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul, why do they still have problems in their lives? You know, born-again Christians are drug addicts and alcoholics and smoke and misuse their bodies and eat too much and uh, do things that cause them injury and harm. All those things happen to born-again Christians. Huh. There must still be a problem somehow in their religion. Now, we have a religion that's different than theirs, don't we? Do we still have problems? Yes, we do. I do. You do. We all do. But we understand why, don't we? 
We understand that every time we transgress God's law, His testimonies, His statutes, we get ourselves in trouble. We know that. And we know when we repent and ask for forgiveness and quit doing what it was that caused us problems, that our problems go away. Wow. There is a difference. They, the Protestants, don't have a solution. They don't understand why they still have problems because they're not under the law, they're under grace. And life should be perfect. And some of them will try to tell you it is. They put on this veneer, this patina of happiness. And they just go around smiling. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. Praise the Lord. Oh, Jesus loves me. Praise the Lord. With a big toothy smile. But they have serious problems. The veneer cannot answer their problems. So we have the law keepers and we have the grace preachers. And this whole subject is going to boil down to the subject of law and grace or the subject of law or grace. And it becomes critical, truly critical, that we understand. We've got to know. Is it one or the other or some combination of both? We need to be able to prove that. Now, the commandments of God embodied in the ten and those spin-off statutes and testimonies and various things that were added because of transgressions. Remember, God said, I did not speak to you of animal sacrifice when you came out of Egypt. He did speak to them of the Ten Commandments, didn't He? At Sinai, when they came out. But Jeremiah 7.22 says, I did not speak to you of sacrifices when you came out. It was added because of transgression. You broke the Ten Commandments, so I had to add a whole bunch of things to show you what ways you were breaking those principles. So he added all kinds of things to them, but on those two, remember what Christ said? On loving God above everything else and loving your neighbor as yourself, on these two, in verse 40, says, hang all the law and the prophets. Every one of those other things hang on the Ten Commandments and the things the prophets said about the commandments and how they would break you if you broke them. All the statutes, all the judgments are connected to and hang from those two commandments, which are a summary of the ten, said Christ himself. So the, the commandments now, I think we all know, are mentioned from Genesis to Revelation. All through the Bible you have information about the Ten Commandments. Grace per se is addressed very little in the Old Testament. Correct? Mostly mentioned in the New Testament. Now forgiveness is mentioned in the Old Testament quite frequently, but grace itself not until the New Testament. 
So, before we address law or grace, or law and grace, I think we first need to make a case for the law. Later, we can see how they might correlate in instruction for New Testament Christians. Because it does no good for me to tell a grace preacher that Psalms and all these other scriptures have a lot to say about keeping the law of God. Psalm 19.7, the law of God converts the soul. David had the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51, take not your spirit from me. He knew he had sinned with Uriah, with Bathsheba, and other ways. And he knew that the Spirit of God could be quenched and taken from him. So David is a man who is going to be in the kingdom of God and rule over all the tribes of Israel. And his heart was full of the law of God. Right? What did David write about more than anything else? Go through the Psalms. He wrote about the laws, the statutes, the testimonies of God over and over and over and over again. So I won't go there. But even the Protestants know that. But they say it was done away. Why do they keep Psalms and Proverbs in their Bible? New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. Because it has lots of nice, sweet things. But it also contains the law. And it talks about the law more, more than it does nice, sweet things. You figure. So, <clears throat> we could spend quite a little time, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the early New Testament, on things Christ said Himself, to unconverted people. They'll say, well, he talked to that young rich man, but that young rich man wasn't converted, so that young rich man was still under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and therefore Christ told him to keep the law. But it doesn't apply to us because we are under the New Covenant, not the Old. So what Christ was saying only applied to those people then, it doesn't apply to us. So some of Christ's clearer statements, they tend to sweep away with that type of logic. Now, is it valid? We need to answer the question. Now, you and I might say that's not valid. Christ said that and he meant that and whatever Christ said is what we go by. But people will excuse themselves using that particular logic, or illogic. So, we could show in the Old Testament the law was a good thing, but that would not convince a law-is-done-away mentality of what we need today. That was only for then and then. And they'll quote Paul's statement over and over, it was only, the law was only a schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. So now once we have Christ, we can get out our AK-47 and shoot all the schoolmasters. Destroy the law. Do away with it. Because it was only there to bring us to Christ. And now we have Jesus. So that's all we need. Is that correct? I want to answer that. Now, let's go to Matthew 19:17 for a moment, and let me illustrate what I'm saying here. Matthew 19. Uh, there had been little children who had been brought to Christ, and he laid hands on them. 
and said that of such was the kingdom of heaven. Verse 16, Behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now here's the first hole in their argument. This young man did not want blessing in this life in the way that he asked his question. His question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was his quest. So Christ was not then saying, you're just a Gentile or you're just an unconverted Israelite, and life eternal is not offered to you anyway, so you need to keep the commandments. That was not the question on the table. The question on the table was eternal life. So if this young man was to obtain eternal life, he wanted Christ to tell him, how do you get life eternal? Okay? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter into life, and the question was eternal life, and that is the answer to the question, if you will enter into eternal life, that is implied there, keep the commandments. Eternal life has to do with the commandments? Wow! Hmm. He said to him, which? All right, let's define this. Which commandments? Uh, Emmanuel said, you shall do no murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He names specifically the Ten Commandments, name several of them, and then summarizes them by loving your neighbor as yourself. So there's no question here which commandments we're talking about. We're not talking about the law of sacrifices, testimonies, judgments, whatever. This is bare naked bones. The Ten Commandments. The young man says to him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet... For eternal life implied. Emmanuel said to him, If you will be perfect, go and sell that you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Emmanuel to his disciples, his students, his learners, those who would be a part of the church of God, who would run it, and who will be over all the tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God. Those disciples. Truly I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Christ did not mention any of the first four commandments when he first addressed the answer to the young rich man. He addressed loving your neighbor as yourself, which is embodied by the last six. 
Didn't mention the first four. He was saving that as his major line. He knew that this young man had many possessions. Was probably dressed so and might have bragged around, but he was aware of it. He knew he was a rich man. So all he had to do was name the first commandment. Don't put anything ahead of God. Sell everything you have and come and follow me. And he knew the man would stumble on the very first one. And he did. So he let him know, right off the bat, the Ten Commandments are the ones I'm talking about. You know these about loving your neighbors yourself? But when it came down to the final answer, he invoked the first commandment. The first and great commandment. And that was the one the boy didn't want to keep. That's all it took. He didn't even have to show him how he broke the other nine. That one was enough. But I think it's very clear here. The Christ is saying that eternal life and commandment keeping go hand in hand. How can you deny that? Even if you say he was talking to a young, unconverted man. Because he turned to his disciples and says, did you get it? Do you understand that a rich man puts money ahead of God? And most Protestants will say, well, yeah, I realize Saturday's the seventh day, but that's the busiest time when I make the most money in the week, and God wants me to make a living. Very cheap, shallow reasoning. That isn't what God says. God says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't work on that day, and don't have your employees work on that day. All right, I want to cut to the chase and get to the bottom line about the commandments and about then the tree of good, a knowledge of good and evil, which the commandments define good from evil. What did Christ tell those students? What did they learn? What did they repeat and teach later as converted ministers of the church of God? That's the next question, and it's a big question, and since we're getting near 2 o'clock, I'm going to stop in case I go over some other time and I can use this as an excuse. But I don't want to go there. We'll pick it up there next time, God willing, and we need to see what those men learned from Christ and what they taught after they were converted to the church. That is critical in answering any Protestant doctrine that says the law is done away. What did those men learn? What did they know? What did they live by? And what did they teach? Now that considers Paul, who, whom they use, for their doctrine. They rarely go to any of the others. It's always to Paul to say, we don't have to keep any of the law, we're under grace, Everything's a-okay, just love the Lord and everything's fine. But they don't even know what love is. So we'll pick it up there next time.